And then we'll go to Isaiah 40, the verses 1 through 8. And after the reading of God's word, let us sing together hymn 19, the stanzas 1 through 4. So first of all, then we read the word of God in Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, or the staff, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And now we turn to... Isaiah chapter 40, first eight verses. Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of, but the word of our God will stand forever.
The text for the sermon this afternoon is taken from the first chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, the verses 1 through 15. And we read the word of God there as follows. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I sent my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. After the sermon, let us sing together hymn 15, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. This afternoon, we turn our attention to the gospel according to Mark. Now, this is the Mark that we know that accompanied Paul and Barnabas on, his first, on their first missionary journey. We know that he didn't stick with it too long. Soon he returned home again. We know that Barnabas' desire to take Mark along on the second missionary journey led to a conflict with the Apostle Paul. The result that they parted ways, each went different directions. It's interesting, though, that later on we know that some kind of reconciliation took place because Paul and Mark became good friends, became a trusted companion of the Apostle Paul, when he wrote also his second letter to the, his first letter, sorry, his only letter to the Colossians, he makes reference to Mark. Now, 
in his second letter to uh, Timothy. He requested that Timothy would take Mark along when he came to visit Paul. Now, isn't that interesting to know? Mark had a good relationship with the Apostle Paul. We also know he had a good relationship with the Apostle Peter and became also there a trusted companion. Well, it's never said specifically that Mark wrote this account in writings dated from around 125 A.D. It is specified that Mark is the author of this account and it's indicated also perhaps that he wrote this account shortly after the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter had been put to death during the persecution during the reign of Nero. Now, if you think about the style of the Gospel of Mark, it's actually the shortest of the Gospels. It's almost very abrupt, very quick. Very often you have the word immediate in there. People have concluded that perhaps this style reflects the style of preaching of the Apostle Peter, who also comes across as very quick and to the point. It's also interesting that the Gospel of Mark was probably the first written account of the life of our Lord, all the other Gospels coming after that. It's interesting to see this general background. Now, if we note that Mark seems to have written this account shortly after the Apostle Paul and Peter were put to death for their faith, we know that he wrote it during the time of persecution. And that also helps us to understand the importance and the direction of this book. Because you see, with not only Paul, but also Peter dead, well, there was no longer, you could say, an apostle around, and especially also with Peter dead, there was no longer an eyewitness of all the actions of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So in that respect, it becomes important that somehow after the first generation of apostles were gone, there would be a written record that would preserve the account of the details accurately. Not only that, but as the believers were living in a time of severe persecution, they would also need encouragement. So they had to keep on knowing what indeed happened, but they needed encouragement. Because when you think of a time of persecution, it looks like here we have a situation of the gates of hell rising up against the church. And persecution is always a severe test of faith. And when that happens, you can think, yes, there were all these nice promises, all this, all this talk about the Lord Jesus, but really, where now is the evidence of his kingdom? When it looks like Satan is hard at work snuffing out the kingdom of God. You need encouragement, you need direction. Well, Mark's account of the life of our Lord clearly shows how indeed in the life of Jesus the kingdom of God had arrived. And that message would then be a permanent message that would encourage the believers, even encourages us today. But at the same time, it also kept on urging the hearers to believe in this gospel. And we see it already in the very opening passage of Mark's account. And that we also today may be encouraged as well as urged to believe I proclaim to you this afternoon, the gospel is that the kingdom of God is here. And we consider, first of all, the evidence for the presence of the kingdom, and secondly, the way to enter the kingdom. 
So the gospel is that the kingdom of God is here. And first of all, we consider the evidence for the presence of the kingdom. As we do that, we do have to spend a moment just to reflect on what exactly now is meant by that expression, the kingdom of God. When you read Matthew, you will see that Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. It's always important to remind ourselves that that kingdom, of course, makes us think of political kingdoms, earthly kingdoms with definite boundaries, specific governments, then in this case we do not have to look at it and we should not look at it in a political sense, but we have to understand it in a spiritual sense. Because ultimately in this world there are only two kingdoms. Either it is the kingdom of God or it is the kingdom of Satan, of the evil one. And we're not speaking in the first place about territory, but we are speaking about who is exercising authority, rule in someone's life. So when we speak about the kingdom of God, we're speaking about the rule of God in someone's life as opposed to someone being ruled by Satan. And these people can be living in the same town. They can be living next to each other. It's not geographic. It's spiritual. Kingdom of God has to do with the rule of God in our lives. Now, of course, the kingdom of God in this world, in terms of God ruling over people, that had already been evident in the way that the Lord God was dealing with the people of Israel. And we can think, yeah, that seems to have been a political kingdom. But the point there was not political, but the point was to be a foreshadowing of the rule of God being reestablished. So, It was remarkable. Old Testament people of Israel, they were unique. We even heard that expression this morning, a nation of priests, a holy nation, because there the rule of God was being reintroduced in the world, while all the other nations round about, no matter what nationality they were, the common denominator was that they were all under the dominion of the prince of darkness. So in Israel, a tiny little country, there you could say God was having one little light bulb, a little light bulb to say, now this is what the kingdom of God is supposed to be about, and eventually, of course, it was supposed to spread from there. But in the dark world, there was a little indication of a people under the rule of God. But we know it didn't go so well with the people of Israel. And because of Israel's sin, though the Lord had such a high calling for his people, because of Israel's sin, it had even gone so far that that the Lord had withdrawn his presence from the people of Israel. We think here especially of what happened in the time of the exile when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and also we think of how Ezekiel even saw visions of of the glory of the Lord which had come down upon the temple in the days of Solomon like it had done before on the tabernacle, but the glory of the Lord left Jerusalem, leaving it unprotected. And before long, indeed, the Babylonians came and they destroyed everything. Ever since that time of exile, which came to its high point, you could say, in 586, when the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed, well, the light almost seemed to have been snuffed out. Yes, they were still the people of Israel, and Indeed, some people were allowed to return, beginning around 539 B.C. 
But you know, from that point on in history, well, for, except for a short period of time after the time of the Maccabees in the second century BC, Israel or the Jews were always part of some other empire, whether it was under the Greeks, whether it was under the Romans. They were all part of a bigger empire. They were no longer even, you could say, as a nation distinct, just kind of swallowed up. But the Lord, even though he had punished his people, and he had said that that was happening because of their sins, he always had given the promise that he was not done with his people, but he would restore his people. He would restore the throne of David. Now, the faithful in Israel, they understood that. And they, they longed for that day of restoration, and for that reason they looked for the Messiah. You know, that's the Hebrew word for the Christ, the anointed one. They were, they were looking for one who would restore it to the glory days of David and Solomon, but it wasn't happening. It hadn't happened yet. But it's all changed. It's all changed with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that unlike Matthew and Luke, which kind of warm us up to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, you could say by telling us the birth stories, Mark does not spend any time whatsoever on his birth. He doesn't go into details about that at all. No. He wants to show us very quickly that in Jesus we have the one who is going to restore the kingdom of God that basically has become kind of non existent, non-visible ever since the destruction of the temple and the taking away of the glory of the Lord. And so what he does is, skipping over the birth stories, that's taken for granted, he was born, but he puts him in the context of prophecies promising restoration. And even more, the promises he mentions indicate that Jesus is the one who is, as it were, and again we see a connection with this morning, you could say, is going to be the one who will lead his people in a new exodus, out of shame, out of oppression, that they had been enduring for over 500, almost 600 years. Now this exodus, leading to a restoration, we learn from various prophecies, would begin by the appearance of a messenger who would prepare the way. And also that messenger would have a message calling people to prepare the way. And so we see, you know, there's this build-up here. that Also, in our text, Mark refers to the prophet Isaiah. But actually, there is a little pro problem here. Because the words he quotes in verse 2, Behold, I have sent my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. They're not from Isaiah. They're actually from Malachi 3, verse 1. And now, careful readers of scriptures have noticed this problem for a very long time. Some ancient manuscripts suggest, well, if you simply read the word prophets and not mention the word Isaiah, well, then you solve the problem, that Mark is simply quoting multiple sources. But the problem is that the best textual evidence suggests that indeed you should read Isaiah. Now, it's true. Words in verse 3. They are taken from Isaiah 40, verse 3. Now we have to acknowledge that these kind of issues are there when you deal with the text of Scripture. Many pages and books have been written 
to try and solve these kind of questions. But rather than pretend that I have an easy solution for you today, it's better to simply leave that as it is and to pay attention to where these quotations are leading us. For us, in the other gospel accounts, this reference to Isaiah combined with Malachi, it takes us very quickly to the person of John the Baptist. And that the restoration of God's people and the evidence of his rule in this world is again going to be there. That begins with someone making an announcement to that effect. That's what we read about also in Isaiah 40. Which then works that out further as to what that message will be about. It's also the point of Malachi 3 verse 1. And Mark says, look, these prophecies... Announcements, messengers coming your way, connected to the person of John the Baptist. Now at this point, as already our attention is drawn to John the Baptist as the messenger, we can also take note of John's message. Because we notice that he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now... We're going to come back to that in more detail in the second point. But here we should note how, by this message, he was calling the people to prepare the way by preparing themselves for the Messiah. In that respect, not that he was the Messiah. No, John, John says, no, I'm not the one. Think of it in verse 7 and 8, where he speaks about the one who is coming who is mightier than him. So notice very clearly, John is the messenger. He does not want to be confused as the actual Messiah who is there. Because he points out, I'm only the messenger, and but even actually worthy to untie the sandals of the one who is coming. Now, that indeed would have been the job of the lowest servant in a household. When visitors came or the master came, take off the person's shoes and wash them. Well, John says, I am so insignificant I, I don't even deserve to do that. And furthermore, that the one coming after him was far more significant than him is also indicated by the way that he said, well, I baptize you with water, but the one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, by that already indication, he was saying that the coming one was God, because John with water was only using the symbol. That's all water is. But only God can give the Holy Spirit. So he's greater, evident in what he can do, what he will do, what John can't even come close to doing. But do notice that the first indication that the kingdom of God had come in the person of Jesus is in the messenger who prepared the way. And then we notice how, how Mark, ever in a hurry, it seems, you know, gospel, Mark is the gospel in a hurry to get to the point very quickly. He wastes no words, and he speaks immediately of Jesus coming to John to be baptized. Well, in verse 1, Mark had already described Jesus as the Son of God. It is in the information and the incident of the baptism that Jesus is revealed as the Messiah who will restore the kingdom and also 
in the process he comes out as being the son of God. Notice that aspect about being revealed as the Messiah. And this comes out in the events that happened when John baptized our Lord. The way the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. Now it's interesting, even though the dove has become a fairly popular symbol for the Holy Spirit, there there is no real Old Testament background that kind of would give reason for this. We know there was a dove after the ark. Noah let the dove out, but there's no indication that that's any connection with the Holy Spirit whatsoever. All we can say here is that perhaps the dove was one of the humblest of the sacrificial animals. That way, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself is at one point portrayed as a humble lamb, even though he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, well, the Holy Spirit here also is portrayed in humility as a humble dove, not some kind of ferocious bird of any kind. But what comes to mind, not getting stuck on the symbol of the dove, but on the fact that here we have the Holy Spirit, is what we find in a couple of prophecies. Isaiah 61, for example. We read there, 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Something similar in Isaiah 42. I have put my spirit upon him, we read there. So remarkable. You know from other parts of scripture that, for example, Ephesians 1, that God has appointed his son from before the foundation of the world to be the Messiah. But even though it was appointed from eternity, our Lord Jesus was anointed in time there in the Jordan. And the Holy Spirit came upon him. Something we also express, for example, in Lord's Day 12, and we ask, well, why is he called Christ that is anointed? Public indication. The Lord didn't leave this as something that happened in his eternal counsel. He gives a public indication. Here is the one you have been waiting for. Here is the one in whom I am restoring my presence in this world. Here is the one, as you can see, by the gift of the Holy Spirit in the form of of a dove. Now we mentioned he's also revealed as the Son of God. This comes out in the way the Father said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. You know, it's a reminder of the words of Psalm 2, verse 7. We have there, The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. But you notice again, this is not just a a private revelation left in the counsel of God, but God sees to it that what he has purposed is proclaimed out loud in the world. It was heard by John the Baptist. It was heard by others who were standing there. We know that even some of those who became the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had begun as apostles of John, but then... They also were there and they witnessed this event. It's important. Later on, when they have to replace Judas, you know that one of the qualifications is that we have to find someone who has kind of followed us around ever since the baptism by John the Baptist of our Lord. And 
in the Jordan. They had to be an eyewitness and an ear witness of all that the Lord Jesus Christ had done. Public testimony. This is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the one in whom the presence of God will again be revealed in this world. But there's more. Because that Jesus was the Messiah bringing in the kingdom of God is also further driven home by the way the Holy Spirit, having come upon the Lord Jesus, immediately drives him into the wilderness. It's mentioned also in the other Gospels. Now, what's the significance of this? Really, what we can see here is a connection with what happened on the Day of Atonement. You recall that that was the high point of Israel's annual ecclesiastical calendar, you could say, when, when they would take those two goats, one would be sacrificed, but then they would take the other goat, which became the scapegoat, and the blood of the first goat was sprinkled on the other goat, and then they chased him into the wilderness there, I guess, to perish. Find this in Leviticus 16. Now here we can see this also with respect to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because here now we have to think for a moment and compare the baptism that the people underwent when they went into the Jordan and the baptism that our Lord Jesus Christ underwent. When it came to the people, the people had to confess their sins. And their baptism was a baptism of repentance for forgiveness and that willingness to be baptized was an indication of their sorrow over sin their commitment to now also live a new way to prepare for the coming of the messiah if you think about that and that doesn't fit at all with respect to our lord jesus christ he could not undergo a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins because he had no sins. And so, to put those pieces together, we can perhaps picture it this way, also in light of the scapegoat scenario, Leviticus 16, that all the people who came to the Jordan, they came there dirty, spiritually dirty. And they were baptized, and all their sins were washed into the Jordan River. And then they went out, could make a new start. But the Lord Jesus Christ came in clean. And because he had no sins to confess, he went in and he, you could say, took all those sins of the people upon him. The people that he came to save. And as the scapegoat, symbolically covered with the sins of the people, was chased into the wilderness, now the Lord Jesus has been designated as the Messiah. What's the first thing that is done? He is chased into the wilderness. There he must begin his trial and his persecution for the sake of his people. There he went to be tempted by Satan. Now notice again, this encounter with Satan further underlines also that we are dealing here with a spiritual kingdom. I mentioned earlier, don't look at it politically, see it spiritually. And really, as we see this, this confrontation, it's remarkable. The moment Christ begins his public ministry, what's the first thing he does? It's not even preach. First thing he does is 
face the devil. And that shows you also the Lord Jesus Christ coming in fulfillment of the great promise in Genesis 3, verse 15. There we have that promise. I'm sure every catechism student has imprinted that upon their mind, the promise of the seed of the woman who was going to come, is going to also have to have enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent and his seed. Great spiritual struggle. The two kingdoms, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of the evil one. The moment the Lord Jesus Christ begins his ministry, that's the first battle against the ancient enemy. And right away it becomes clear that our Lord Jesus Christ did not come to take up the sword and beat up the Romans and other nations and establish his kingdom. He came to be the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. And so, as we work our way through these aspects of our text, you see how the evidence is just piling up that in Jesus Christ, God's kingdom has come. Remember, Mark is writing this down after Peter had died, so the people who were reading this said, yeah, we remember, we remember hearing about this. And then it's driven home. All these, these biblical themes coming together already at the beginning of our Lord's ministry. From the messenger preparing the way to the anointing with the Holy Spirit to the public declaration by the Father to the encounter with the ancient enemy. Would have been encouraging. Encouraging for the people who would think, well, what's really coming of it all now? There, Peter is gone. Paul is gone. We're being persecuted. It looks like the kingdom is going to be defeated, but, but really a reminder that this is the nature of the kingdom as the master himself had to confront the enemy. He was being attacked. He would eventually be crucified. Yes, it would also happen to those who followed him. But, as we see already also at the beginning here, as our Lord was attacked by the ancient enemy, he was victorious. Because even though Unlike the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, Mark does not give any details. Well, the other ones, they mention the three temptations. He, he simply mentions it happened, and it mentions he triumphed. First encounter, he triumphed. It's also underlined by the way our Lord Jesus then is said to be with the wild animals for a moment there. For a moment, after that first confrontation we get a little glimpse back to paradise. You know, our first parents, they, they could be with the wild animals and they didn't have to be afraid of the tiger or the lion or the elephant. They could be with them and everything was in harmony. See, a little glimpse. Our Lord Jesus Christ, first victory, anticipating his final victory. A little view also of, of the restored life that he came to bring about. Sharp contrast to our first parents who, who lived in a garden with an abundance. Our Lord did this with no food and water. They, they lived at one temptation, one tree they couldn't touch. They failed. Our Savior comes 40 days of temptations. We know of three of them. He overcame it. It's also rewarded by having the angels ministering to him. But notice, an anticipation of his ultimate victory. So the beginning of Mark already makes you think of the end of Mark. So it anticipates already here the victory on the cross and the promise also of 
of the restored life that is waiting. But there's one more indication of the presence of the kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. And that also comes out in what we read about after John's arrest. For there we are told that Jesus came into Galilee. See, now you understand why we read that passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Because there it was mentioned that Galilee, which used to be the tribal areas of Zebulun and Naphtali, which really was considered the backwater of Israel, had been one of the first areas snatched up by by the Assyrian kings and gone into exile, you could say. But there it was prophesied that this first area, which kind of was snatched away from Israel, would be the first area to experience the light of the gospel of the restoration of the kingdom. It would be the first area that would begin to get a taste of the new exodus because they would be the first to hear the message from the mouth of the Messiah. Makes you realize the Lord Jesus Christ began in Galilee. Not, well, that's just where it happened. In the Bible, nothing ever just happens. God has his purpose. And everywhere, he's always showing that he spoke about it in the past and things are being fulfilled, which impresses upon us that the testimony of the scripture is reliable. So the opening chapter of Mark's account, therefore, impresses upon us that the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom is found in the ministry of John the Baptist, the messenger who prepared the way by announcing the coming of Christ, the public anointing at his baptism, the first encounter with the ancient enemy, and the beginning of his ministry in Galilee. For all these events, not incidental, not kind of by the way, seen in light of the Old Testament prophecies show the time of the restoration has come. This is the time of the new exodus in the person of Jesus Christ. And that takes us to our second point, where we consider how to enter the kingdom. For the presence of the kingdom in the person of Jesus leads to an urgent call to respond in order to be part of his kingdom. It comes out already in the preaching of the messenger, John. Because we read in verse 4 how he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Brings out that the words of Isaiah, when it talked about straightening the path, that was not referring to physical paths. They didn't have to get the scrapers out and the bulldozers and stuff like that. But it had to do with the hearts of the people. They, they were crooked, and they had to be made straight. Because... They were crooked because of sins, of disobedience, and and those were an obstacle. For if there was no confession of sin, no repentance, then they would not enter the kingdom. And if there was no such repentance, well, then the presence of the kingdom and the coming of the king would not be good news. No, that would have to be something that one would dread. For the king would not come to restore, but to condemn, or to use the terms of this morning, not to commune with his people, but to consume the people that refuse to turn to him. 
And I wish you'd note well the emphasis on repentance in the expression, a baptism of repentance. Because John was not just speaking about a sorrow over sin, but, but he was talking about a complete reorientation of life. And his message impressed on the people that in their present spiritual condition, they were not ready for the Messiah. And further also, we should realize the significance that he was baptizing in the Jordan. Israel knew baptisms. They knew ceremonial washings, a little bit of water when they had leprosy or something had been contaminated. But this was something different, a baptism in the Jordan. It's like almost that the Lord was indicating Israel, you've got to kind of reverse your steps from the promised land in the direction of the wilderness. They had to again go through the Jordan for the exodus that Jesus was bringing leading to a restored kingdom required a new start. And this, this message of repentance also was reinforced by John's clothing and diet. Because really, when we read that, we realize John was not on some kind of health kick to just have basic stuff to eat. No, these were the clothing and, and the diet indicating symbolically mourning and fasting. You know, we have that expression, the medium is the message. Well, in John's case, the medium indeed was the message, the way he lived, the way he presented himself. There was an impression upon the people, this is serious. There needs to be radical change in our life. There needs to be repentance. It comes out in the way the messenger presented himself. Now, as for his baptism, we can see the that the connection with repentance impressed upon his hearers that they should not undergo baptism if they were not sincere in their repentance. You know, in other places, we know John saw the Pharisees coming, and he knew they were not sincere. They just wanted to give the impression that they were moving along with the people, but then he called them hypocrites, brood of vipers, because baptism was only a sign of forgiveness if there was sincere Repentance. Now we see in verse 15 how the call for repentance was taken up by our Lord Jesus Christ once he began his ministry. John fades from the scene very quickly. Only gets a few verses in Mark. Then the Lord Jesus comes. But his message is essentially the same. Repent and believe in the gospel. We know that Jesus did not mention baptism. We, we are even told specifically in John 4, verse 2, that John did not baptize, although his disciples did. must have been in the style of John the Baptist. focus of his ministry was on preaching, the call to repent, to believe the gospel. A message that did not change and has not changed, because if you think of the message of the apostles, once they received the Holy Spirit, they simply carried on with that message of John, of the Lord Jesus Christ, because they proclaimed in the person of Jesus Christ the kingdom was here. And that call to repent and believe the gospel that the king is here, he has come in the person of Jesus Christ, that is still the basic message of the church to this day. 
we can add to it even the call to be baptized, not with Christian baptism, but, but that call to believe the kingdom is here in Jesus Christ. That's the essence of the gospel message. And indeed, we need to heed that call. It's interesting the note, to note that the need to repent, meaning a lifelong, wholehearted turning to God, was also stressed in the very first thesis of the 95 Thesis of Martin Luther. You know that be much in our attention this past year, even the past month. I'm sure perhaps even your own school might have had some ceremonies or evening dedicated to it, but it has been on our mind all year. The Reformation had begun with Martin Luther. And then in those 95 theses that he wrote over against the shallow expressions of sorrow and easy forgiveness, you could buy a certificate and just have your sins forgiven just like that. It's interesting. The very first thesis that Luther published was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's a reference to this text. In his third thesis, he said, Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. See, Luther rediscovered the message of the kingdom and the gospel. And repentance is not something you buy, nothing something superficial, something you just do in your heart, but you live it out. You show it, the repentance shown in your deeds. And so as we look back over Mark's opening words, we see against the backdrop of the Old Testament prophecies that in the person of Jesus Christ, the kingdom has come. And that's truly gospel, truly good news for all who have been longing for that kingdom. And as we look around the world today, just like it would have been in the days of Peter, and even when Mark wrote this down, it may not seem that the kingdom of God is here. After all, it seems like Satan is just having a field day. He can do what he wants, and his ways are popular and being accepted by people, and the kingdom of God is being suppressed more and more. But the evidence is here kingdom of God is here in the person of Jesus Christ, a spiritual kingdom. And Mark, as he builds on this in his gospel, will give further evidence in the way, for example, that Jesus shows his power over the evil one by dealing with all kinds of illnesses, casting out demons, showing the presence of the kingdom. But here is the beginning. At the same time, we hear the call, repent and believe in the gospel. For it is only for those who repent and believe that it truly is gospel. Good news. Amen.